of holiness. We pray these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember when you were a kid, when Christmas felt so far away, right? It would be like, man, from January all the way to Christmas felt like 20 years. Uh, You're just looking forward to it. You're counting down the days. It would just feel so distant, so far removed. As a kid, I had one of those uh, Advent calendars where every day of December you would open up a little door and there was a piece of chocolate. I wanted one of those, by the way, so badly. Rachel found one for me at Hobby Lobby because always looking to bring back the childhood, right? But Christmas feels so far away. Then you get older and the time begins to go by faster and you're like, it's Christmas 2013, wait, 2021. What happened to all of these years? And here it is again. That distance between December 1st and December 25th, when you're a kid, that feels like an eternity. Sometimes if we're not careful, the distance between the incarnation in our lives can be sort of an unbridgeable chasm. It'd be like, oh yeah, Jesus came to earth, and it's this event that happened two, two millennia ago. It's way, 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 way back, and yeah, we, we acknowledge it happened, and historians tell us that it happened, and the book of Luke tells us it happened. Great, yes, the incarnation, Jesus came into this world. That's, that's wonderful, and, and every Christmas we're reminded of the fact of the incarnation. But if we are not careful, there can be this great gap that emerges between our lives, living in, let's see, it is November 2021. I get that right, we'll be 2022 before we know it. And the events that happened back around 4 BC and the events of the life of Jesus The question I want to ask and answer over the next four weeks as we we begin our Advent season is, so what? We can talk about, yes, Jesus is the reason for the season. Put Christ back into Christmas. But so what? Why does it matter for our lives? And I think as Christians, we all readily recognize Jesus came into this world to save us. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. He came to reveal God to us. He came to show us the way of salvation, he came to die. We understand all of that, but sometimes we see the relevance of Christmas sort of stopping at the doorway of the church. Here's what I mean. Christmas is important because without Christmas we couldn't get saved. Now I'm saved, that's great. I'm speaking primarily to Christians today. I want to, be talking, I want to talk to you over the next four weeks why the incarnation, God becoming flesh, why Christmas matters for your Christian life. Kind of an unusual series for Christmas. Normally we do something with the wise men or the shepherds or the characters of Christmas. There is nothing wrong with that. But sometimes that can be very familiar ground and we don't, we don't see the relevance and the importance of this for our lives. You got the email from the church. I asked this question. How do we stay motivated in holiness, through suffering, in our worship, in our sacrifice? How do we stay motivated in the Christian life? One thing I have observed over the last 18 months a lot of Christians have really taken a hit in the motivation department. You know, commitment level was about here, then COVID came along, and everybody's commitment level went back one level. So the people who were faithful coming out to church are like, well, Wednesday nights have now dropped off. And people who were kind of on the margins have stopped coming to church. By the way, this is not just our church. This is across the board. I talk to pastors all the time, and they're saying, yeah, we've all seen about a 20% drop-off in just uh, attendance. Just COVID came and smacked us and the exhaustion and then an election and January 6th and Facebook and the news media and all of these things. Just we feel exhausted and we feel like, man, I don't have the, the, what it takes to be faithful to, to worship God and to gather with his people and to press on through suffering. How do we fuel the fires of our motivation? This is so appropriate as we come to the end of the year, isn't it? As we look to a new year, to sort of a new start. 
Well, part of the answer is Christmas. This is one of the things that fascinates me. The text that we will be looking at in the next four weeks, I don't have a one book of the Bible we will walk through in the next four weeks, but four different, just a, a constellation of texts that all reference what Jesus did in his first coming that call us, that, that motivate us in these different areas. We'll be looking at Titus 2 this morning that calls us to holiness. And here's the amazing argument that Paul makes. Because Jesus came to this earth, be holy is the sense of his argument. Now, I wouldn't have drawn that argument. I'd say, well, be holy because holiness is really important. But in Titus 2, Paul's going to call us to reject worldly lust because God's grace appeared decisively in history. And 2 Timothy 1, the text we will be looking at next week, Paul will say, I'm going to suffer for the gospel. Why? Because God's eternal plan was made manifest in the coming of Jesus. So the, the, the birth of the baby in Bethlehem calls you and me to, to press on through suffering. Sometimes we go through life and we feel incredibly lonely and helpless. Our worship, the, the fires of our worship just kind of turn to ash. Well, Hebrews chapter 2 appeals to the fact that Jesus came into the world like us, was made of the seed of Abraham, and so he is able to help us in our testing, and that reality motivates us to come boldly into worship. What about our generosity? It's so easy to turn inward when we're going through pandemics and elections and all these things. And one thing, that's something I've noticed, people isolate and close themselves off. And when things get bad, instead of moving into relationships, instead of giving to others, we pull back and just kind of shut ourselves off. Well, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor, that through his poverty we might be made rich. Paul gives us that argument to say, Christians, be generous. So if you're feeling a little unmotivated, you feel a little exhausted in your pursuit of holiness, you feel a little unmotivated in, as you go through suffering, you're losing some steam in your worship and your fervor and sacrifice, man, that's just out of the question. Come here this week, well, you already are here this week, in the next several weeks, as we, we see how the reality of Christmas, as we see how the reality of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is marshaled by the New Testament writers to call us. It's, it's really, it's absolutely mind-boggling. This is not the line I would draw. Because of Christmas, be holy. Yet that's exactly the message. Look with me in Titus 2. If you don't have your Bibles open, Titus 2, verse 11. For, okay, this is, this is per, continuing an argument. He's talked about holiness and, and edification and, and what that would look like in the life of the church. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. as a reference to the Incarnation of Jesus, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing, notice that word appearing again, now we move from first coming to second coming, of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. We're looking for the second coming, so the first coming on one side, the second coming on the other side, calling us to holiness, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. This is an amazing chain that is, that is forged through the, this text. Now, you think about a chain, a chain is only as good as its weakest link. And the, these links in this chain are, really go together. And the anchor on the end of this chain to keep the ship of our lives where it needs to be is in verse 11. God's grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men. This is a reference to the first coming of Jesus. We see God's grace in Advent, Advent grace in the coming of Jesus, calling us to holiness and to hope. So let's just walk through this text here. First off, I want you to see this reality. Advent grace appeared. 
Okay, in verse 11, Advent grace appeared. The grace of God appeared, literally the word order. This is a perfect prelude for us as we come into the Christmas season. By the way, don't these Christmas decorations in here just look beautiful? I, I, love, I love Christmas. I love I put lights up on the house. I love this time of year. But what a prelude here for us. Now, you might say, I don't see anything here about Christmas. I'm not seeing a baby in the manger. Where's the wise men? Like, where's the shepherds? What's going on here? It's all wrapped up in that single word, appeared. That word appeared is the, the word we get epiphany from, right? Ah, I had an epiphany. Something became visible to me. That's what the word means. It means to make something apparent. It means to show something. The word's there in verse 11. It's there in verse 13. It's there in over, just over the page in chapter 3, verse 4. But after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, there's this decisive moment in history where God's grace comes crashing onto the stage of history. We're talking about a decisive historical appearance and making visible of God's grace in history, in time. It's not just, well, God shows grace, but there's this point where, boom, God's grace is shown to be all that it is. Now, let's just talk a little theology here, all right? I love theology. We cannot take the attributes of God and divorce them from the person of God. Sometimes we think about God's attributes are just sort of, well, here's his grace, and here's his mercy, and here's his justice, and they're sort of divorce from the being of God. Christian theology teaches this, that the attributes and the essence of God cannot be divided. In other words, you don't just get the grace of God separated from the person of God. This describes who God is in his entirety. It's not like one day God's like, today I'm doing grace and tomorrow I'm doing justice. He is all of his attributes all the time. He is not a pizza that is divided up into little, little pieces. So that means this, if God's grace is going to appear, it's not going to just sort of, here's God's grace sort of floating around like a cloud. God's grace, the grace of God can only appear if the God of grace appears. All right? So for God's grace to become visible means the God of grace needs to show up. The person who who has that grace shows up. To announce the grace of God appeared is to say the God of grace appeared. So when and how did all the fullness of the divine being become visible to us? In the manger in Bethlehem. That's what Paul's referring to in verse 11. This is the anchor on the end of this chain, and everything else comes off of this in this text. So Advent grace appeared. It appeared in history. It appeared in flesh. That's what we say, the word incarnation. Okay, in, in, that's what that means. Carnation, you think the word carne, flesh. God in flesh, the second person of the Trinity We understand this, right? God the Son did not come into being in Bethlehem. He has been in being from eternity past. He is eternal. He is God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. Colossians 2 and verse 9 puts it very well. It says, The fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in Jesus. In the second coming of, uh, in the coming of Jesus, in the coming of the second person of the Trinity, we don't just have a little portion of God. Here's one-third of God here. We have all of God in Jesus, all the attributes of God in Jesus, including the grace of God. Jump over with me to John chapter 1, because I want you to see the connection between God's grace appeared and what John would write a few decades later. John chapter 1 and verse 14, and the word, okay, the logos, that's a reference to the the, the, the person of the second person of the Trinity before the incarnation. The Word was made flesh, became flesh, and dwelt among us. And John says, And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of, notice this, 
grace and truth. So he says one of the, the first things that comes to John's mind when he thinks of Jesus walking this earth is he is full of grace, this attribute of God, this unmerited favor, this generosity. John, that's John the Baptist, bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. He's eternally existent. Verse 16, And of his fullness have we all received, and grace upon grace. It's just overflowing grace through the person of Jesus, infinite grace, divine grace. He is the embodiment of grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, or some texts say the only begotten God, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. In other words, Jesus is the full expression of all that is in God, including his grace. So back to Titus 2. God's grace appeared in history, in flesh, in the person of Jesus. Now, what do we mean by grace? Grace, if you want a good synonym, is generosity. Generosity. If someone's generous to you, it's not because you went out and did something that you, you know, kind of earned it. Generosity is, is gratis. It's free. It's, it's unmerited. It is undeserved. But we add to this reality, this is grace that is shown to people who do not, it's not only that they don't deserve it, but they deserve the precise opposite. Sinners who deserve judgment, rebels who deserve wrath. God's giving grace and favor to. So this is very, very important. This is sort of the most important point this morning is in verse 11. God's grace appeared. Christmas, the advent, the first coming, the baby in the manger is God's grace appearing on the stage of history. But notice there's a little phrase here in verse 11 that bringeth salvation to all men. All right? Salvation, this is, great. this is not just kindness and favor and generosity in a general sense. God has, there, is a, there is an expression of God's grace called common grace. People who don't know Jesus still enjoy the sunshine and they still enjoy tasty meals. And they still can go to the hospital and God still gives them life. No, this is salvation bringing grace. That word salvation, though, immediately makes us ask a question. Salvation from what? All right, God's grace brings rescue. It brings deliverance. It makes very little sense for me to say, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to rescue you. The, the question is like, well, I didn't need rescuing. I'm doing just fine over here. Thank you very much. Uh, like an overzealous lifeguard jumping into a pool, you know, rescuing someone who's swimming laps. They don't need rescuing. If, however, you are on the bottom of the pool, right, and you don't know how to swim, them jumping in and rescuing you is genuine deliverance. What do we need salvation from? A lot of people today think we need salvation from just imperfection. I'm a pretty good person. Like, I, I keep 90% of the rules. I'm decent. I'm moral. But I just need a little help to be a better person. That's not what we, are, we need salvation from. We don't need salvation from low self-esteem. Right? That, well, I'm just sort of psycho, 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 psych, psychologically, I need to be rescued from I have a low self-esteem and people have been mean to me and... Uh, I just need to think better about myself. I need to become a better version of me. I need to become the best version of who I really am. That's not what Jesus came to do. No, what did Jesus come to do? He came to deliver us from our sin. He came to deliver us from the wrath of God. What did we need saving from? We needed saving from ourselves, and we needed saving from God. In our sin, God's not our buddy or our pal. He's our enemy. And Jesus came to reconcile God and sinners One of the hymns we'll surely sing over the next four weeks is, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. God and sinners reconciled, presupposes that we needed to be reconciled. 
Jesus makes it very clear why he came in, in Luke 19.10. He says, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Galatians 4 and verse 4 says that he came, made of a woman under the law to rescue those who are under the law. Romans, 4, or Romans 8 says that he came in the likeness of flesh and to, to deliver us from sin, that we might walk according to his righteousness. But notice who the salvation is for. So Advent grace appeared, and it appeared bringing salvation. And then we've got this phrase, to all men. Uh, now, just a little syntax here, a little quibbling here with what's going on. It almost, you read this, it's like, well, everybody saw it. Question for you, did everybody on the planet see the appearance of Jesus when he came? The answer is no, right? Jesus actually appeared uh, in, a, in a little corner of the ancient world called Judea, born in a little town called Bethlehem, grew up in an obscure place called Nazareth that doesn't even get named by any of the historians. He, he lived in a place that doesn't show up on any map, right? So it's not that everybody saw his coming, only a few, a handful of people in the Middle East saw it. Rather, what appears to, what, what is for all men is the salvation. So if we just change the order around, the sense of this is, God's grace appeared, bringing salvation for all men. This is salvation that is made available to all nations. This is salvation that is available no matter your background. Now, if you go back and read Titus 2, 1 to 10, you'll find out that in verse 2, Paul has addressed the aged men. Do you see that in verse 2? The aged men, they need to live a certain way. Verse 3, the aged women need to live a certain way. Verse 4, the young women need to live a certain way. Uh, Verse 6, young men need to live a certain way. We find out later on in verse 9 that slaves need to live a certain way. I think what he's saying here is whether you're a man or a woman or you're young or you're, an old, you're old or you're a slave or you're a master, God's grace reaches you. Now, this does not literally mean that he literally saves everyone. You could read this and become a universalist. Be like, oh, God's grace came, bringing salvation for everyone. 1 Timothy 4.10 says he is the Savior of all men especially those who believe, or you could even say that is those who believe. So the all that he comes bringing salvation for, it's not, well, everybody just gets saved. It's not just he tries to get save everybody but kind of failed, and he's sort of a miserable failure at saving everyone. Rather, the all are those who believe. All kinds of people, old, young, men, women, slaves, masters. You go to 1 Timothy 2, we find out that all includes kings. There is literally no people group, no demographic that is overlooked. There is no background where he says, Mm-mm, you can't be saved. Salvation for all who believe, according to 1 Timothy 4 and verse 10. So if you want to enjoy this salvation that's being talked about, you must believe in Jesus Christ. You must repent of sin. You must repent of self-rule. You must repent of trying to save yourself by your own works and submit to Jesus and depend on what he did for you on the cross. Believe in the reality of the, uh, reality of the empty tomb. Advent grace. It appeared in history. It appeared in history bringing salvation. Salvation from God's wrath. Salvation for all who believe. But we move on now to verse 12. God's grace appeared in history, verse 12. It appeared doing what? Teaching us. That is training us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, here's how, what Paul does. Here's something that happened way back at 6 BC. The baby is born in Bethlehem. Now he's, boom, fast forward to today. You notice, in this present world. Here's the reality. The, the Advent grace transforms us. Right? So this chain of grace, the, the anchor on the end of the chain, the baby born in Bethlehem, the, the anchor, the reality, the incarnation, to the ship of our lives, how we live today, verse 12. 
It's teaching us something. It's training us in something. There's an ongoing ramification in our lives. You see, sometimes we think this. All right, I got saved by grace. Good, right? We're, 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 we're Protestants. We believe that we're saved by grace through faith. That's all that grace does. Just saves me. Now I got to, you know, it's just me. No, he's saying, no, the same grace that saves you will transform you. Here's another misconception. Well, since God's a God of grace, he doesn't care how I live. God's grace, shall we continue? It's in the grace may abound. Uh, many people say, yeah, God, if God's a God of grace, you know, you just embrace the fact that you're a sinner. Verse 12 militates against that, right? Verse 12 would refute that. The same grace that saves us begins to transform us. How does it transform us? Well, in two ways. On one hand, it calls us to deny, to reject something. And on the other hand, it calls us to live a certain way. To say no to something and then to live yes to something. So Advent grace, the grace of Jesus revealed in the incarnation, demands that our lives be different. If you believe in Christmas, okay, you say, I'm a Christian. Keep Christ in Christmas. Jesus is the reason for the season. Verse 12 ought to be something that matters to you. doesn't do a whole lot of good to have a little bumper sticker that says, keep Christ in Christmas, put a manger scene in front of your house. If that grace and that reality is not calling you to hate sin, it teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Advent grace does not simply stop with rescuing us from eternal hell. It works to transform us on this present earth. Our salvation involves not just eternity, but it involves today. It does not merely take us out of earth to heaven, but it calls us to be citizens of heaven while on earth. So what does it call us to do? It calls us to deny ungodliness, that is impiety. And worldly lust. And we hear lust, we often think, well, sexual desire. But the idea is just any kind of passion, worldly passions, passions that are merely shaped by the culture that lead us away from God. Now, how does the incarnation teach us this? Well, think about this. Jesus, while he, is, while he was on this earth, proclaimed this very message. If any man will come after me, let him do what? Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So this grace appears. Here's Jesus in flesh and blood. And this is the very message, the very demand that he makes. If you're going to be my follower, you're going to be a Christian, you've got to reject sin. You've got to repent. You've got to live a life of repentance. Repentance for Jesus is not just the entrance into salvation. It is the very path of Christian living. Think about how Jesus modeled this. No, Jesus did not have any ungodliness to reject. But he did willingly empty himself. He did willingly humble himself. He did willingly come to this earth. One of the major lessons of the incarnation. Michael read Philippians 2 for us, and and Paul says, let this mind be in you. This this calls us to live a certain way. So Jesus in his life demanded that we deny ourselves. Jesus in his life modeled for us what it looks like to deny ourselves and to live for God and God alone. So you see how Paul connects our Christian life with the reality of Christmas. The the baby in the manger, God's grace appeared, that same grace, that same favor, calls us to live a certain way. It calls us away from sin, to deny ungodliness, impiety, living life without reference to God, and worldly lust. Now here's my question. How's that going in your life? What does that look like in your life? Are you rejecting impiety in your life? Are there areas of your life that you live without reference to God? See, we're pretty good at like, okay, I come to church on Sundays and sort of certain categories of our lives living for God. Ungodliness is any area of our lives that is not lived in reference and submission to God. So think about your, your, your work, your job. 
Think about your family relationships. Think about your friendships. Think about the way that you speak. Think about the ways that you interact online. Think about the, the, the ways that you use media. Think about your internet browsing habits. Think about your entertainment choices. Think about the conversations you have with others. Are they marked by, by gossip or by edification? Are there areas of your life that you live without reference to God? Are there areas of your life that would be really no different if God did not exist? See, plenty of people in this city live generally sort of moral lives without believing in Jesus. As Christians, we're called to something more than that, right? Living all of life to the glory of God. That's impiety, living life without reference to God. And then worldly lusts, just the desires that are no different than the desires of the culture around us. I think sometimes here's what happens as Christians. We have the exact same desires, the exact same cultural lenses as the world around us, and then we sort of sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on there. How is your life different because of Jesus? Can you think of one thing that you do currently that you would not do if God did not exist? Can you think of things in your life that are fundamentally altered by the reality that Jesus came into this world and that God's grace has saved you and that you're going to live for God? Do you find yourself going along with those ethically dubious decisions at work? Do you find yourself just being caught up with materialism just like the world around you? Do you have the ability to say no to the entertainment of this world, or do you feel compelled to just go along with whatever is happening? Do you have the ability to say no to the idols of our culture? That's what denying means, saying no. So Advent grace transforms us, and one of the ways it transforms us is by training us to say no and to reject worldly lust and impiety. But look at the positive side of things. Look back at verse 12. So God's grace has appeared. It's teaching us that we should live in a certain way. Here's how we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, in this here and now. God's grace, Advent grace, grace revealed in the coming of Jesus, trains us to live in this present world. We're talking about real life in the real world, the world as it really is. Christianity is not calling us off to some monastery somewhere. Christianity doesn't call us to all go move to Montana and have a compound where we only associate with Christians. It calls us to live in the real world. And here's where the incarnation matters. When God wanted to save us, he didn't send an angel for us. He didn't kind of have a, you know, a long stick to say, grab onto the stick. He showed up in the flesh. Jesus, truly human, walking around this world, living in this world, in this present age, as a human being, overcoming sin, overcoming temptation, never once having a thought or a desire for sin giving us that model of how we live in the present age. That's why Christianity is very grounded in the here and now. It's not just, well, the future in heaven, because Jesus came into this world, giving us a model for how we should live in this world. He did not simply pass by, but he moved in. He lived and grew and matured and suffered and ate and slept and interacted in this present world. The point here, grace does not simply fit us for heaven, but it fits us for earth too. Grace equips us for righteous living in, in this wicked world. God's favor, God's generosity that we've received through Christ changes our hearts so we should live in a certain way. Now, notice the, the, the words here. Notice those three terms of verse 12. Look there with me. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly. Often when we think soberly, we think, well, yes, yeah, sobriety, and you know, I, I'm overcoming addictions. And certainly, God would call his people to not be dominated by any kind of addiction. The word here means a little more than that. It means prudent. 
it means showing self-control. So it's not just for people who've happened to struggle with substance abuse. This is for all people live in a way that is marked by self-control. That's what God's grace calls us to do. You say, what does this look like? Well, back in verse 2, aged men are to be sober. Right? The seriousness, they're to be mature. We see it again in verse 4. Older women are to teach younger women they may be, that they may be sober to love their husbands, to love their children. Again, self-controlled. Verse 5, uh, verse 6 rather, young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. All of Titus 2 is basically an explanation of what soberness looks like. If you want it simply, it is a right relationship with yourself, right? So often we're dominated by our desires. We don't have self-control. Living a sober life is living one where your desires are reined in by the grace of God. Okay, next term here, soberly, righteously. Righteousness for Paul is living life in accordance with God's law, particularly the second table, how we relate with other people. So sober, my right relationship with myself, with my own desires, having those in check, living righteously, right relationship with other people, living in accordance with God's law, loving your neighbor as yourself. Why? God's grace, Advent grace appears, it's transforming us. This is an ongoing work in the life of the Christian because Jesus came, because he entered this world. My life is fundamentally altered. I live righteously. And then, of course, the word godly obviously deals with my relationship with God, worshipfully, uh, piously, relationship with God. In other words, there's no area of our lives that is left untouched. All right? The coming of Jesus is not simply, okay, your soul has now sort of been lifted up and you're saved and off to heaven you go and the rest of your life is untouched. This is a radical altering of our lives. This is a complete subversion of our value system that happens when grace collides with our lives. Relationship with ourselves, our desires, soberly. Relationship with others, righteously. Relationship with God, godly. All three dimensions of our relationships radically altered by God's grace. And where did this grace come from? It was unleashed in the incarnation of Jesus. You see how relevant Christmas is for Christian living. More than, yeah, Christmas came along and it's simply going to call us once a year to be generous and to be nice to each other. No, Christmas calls us to hate sin, to say no to sin. Christmas calls us to love righteousness and to live a godly life in this present age. So Advent grace, it appeared, verse 11. It brings salvation. Advent grace transforms Fourthly, Advent grace anticipates. It's not just about the past, it's about the future. Look at verse 13. We do all this while we are looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So looking for. Um, The idea there here is hoping for. The idea here is anticipating. It's not just that I sit up on the rooftop and I look east, being like, when's Jesus going to come? Break out my prophecy charts, go to a John Hagee thing. That's not the idea, but it's living in anticipation and in readiness for the coming of Jesus Christ. Notice the description of the coming of Jesus. It's called the blessed hope and the glorious appearing. Now, those are not two different things. It's not like, well, here's the blessed hope. That's one thing. And then the glorious appearing, that's the second thing. The way this is worded in the Greek, we're talking about one glorious coming of Jesus. There's not two comings. There's one coming that's referenced here and anticipated here. We're anticipating that blessed hope. What does that mean? Let me give you just a rendition here. A happy hope. 
For us as Christians, the coming of Jesus is a happy thing. The return of Jesus is joy to the world. The Lord is come. By the way, that's not about Christmas. That is about the second coming. Let earth receive her king. When he comes back, he's coming as king. The thorns, the thistles will be done away with. The curse will be removed. His kingdom will be established. He'll rule and reign on this earth literally for a thousand years. And then after that will be a final judgment. He will reign forever and ever. That's, what's, that's what we're looking forward to. And joy to the world. It brings us joy. Question, do you anticipate the second coming? Or is it just kind of something you're like, oh, I kind of dread that. I kind of, my, I've got big plans for the next year. Got a cruise I'm taking to the Bahamas, and there's a trip to Disney in the works, and man, retirement is so soon, and there's a golf game, and I want to see my grandkids grow up. By the way, those are some noble aspirations. But is the greatest aspiration of your heart, beloved, to say, I'm looking for Jesus to return, and I long to stand before him? That is the only thing that will keep you going in the Christian life, because the Christian life doesn't really make a whole lot of sense and simply... Uh, Temporal concerns. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if the resurrection's not a thing, he says, we're of all men most miserable. We are, we're doing worse than wasting our time being Christians because Christianity does not give you your best life now. Christianity brings suffering. Christianity brings persecution. Christianity brings sort of ostracism from the culture. So if there is not a future, if there is not eternity, if Jesus is not coming back, you're wasting your time. There's no point in fighting sin, because sin is really fun, and it's way easier to give in to sin than to kill sin. It's way easier to just sort of swim in the sewer of our culture than to say, I'm going to be pure in heart. What's the motivation? Blessed are the pure in heart for what? For they shall see God. It's the hope that I will stand before him one day. It's the hope that Jesus will one day be unveiled in glory. It's the hope that one day I will be transformed and rewarded, and I will bask in his presence that motivates me to fight sin. Now, here's the connection. Verse 13 says, we're looking for that blessed hope, that happy hope, and the glorious appearing. Okay, that's the second, the other side of the coin. Remember, this is referring to one thing. The appearing of the glory is literally the rendering here. So, we're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory. So, in the first coming, we got an appearing of his grace. The second coming, we will get a full appearing of his glory. That's what we are looking for, this happy hope, this deliverance. We anticipate the appearing of his glory. He's coming back. He's coming back with full glory to rule and to reign. Now, here's the connection between the first and second coming. Verse 11 says God's grace appeared. Do you see that word appeared? Verse 13 says looking for that glorious appearance. Those are the same Greek words, right? One's a noun, one's a verb. Paul's saying the first coming is an appearing. The second coming is also an appearing. These are linked together. If you're a Christian, you believe the first coming of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus. It's entirely logical and natural to take the next step to say, well, if he came the first time, he's coming the second time. If God made promises, baby's going to be born of a virgin in Bethlehem to be the Savior. And guess what? He did that. Then it follows that he's going to keep his other promises as well. Right? If, he, if, if he was born of a virgin, that's, a, that's coming into the world through, through a door that says no entrance. And if he res, walks out of a tomb, walking out through a door that says no exit, you better believe he's going to keep his promises. Right? He is going to come back one day, and that reality ought to grip our hearts. Let's be honest, though. How many of us wake up in the morning thinking, man, today could be the day? 
How many of us live as if Jesus could come back? We kind of think, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a while, right? You know, things are going pretty good. It'll, it'll be down the road. And it may be thousands of years, and it may be in the next minute he could return at a time when you think he will not return. Now, this gives us hope. There's not a whole lot of hope in our world. People are, are hopeless. People are despairing. I mean, if you think about it, if there is not a God who is guiding history, it is kind of scary to think about. You've got China who's saber-rattling all the time with Taiwan and Russia putting troops on the border of Ukraine. And you're like, man, like World War III, this could be really... And people got nuclear weapons and you've got Kim Jong-un and, like, terrorists. And it's a scary world. There's an Omicron variant. You probably heard about that. They just skipped over some Greek letters. That's kind of fun. But you've got this variant coming on. And if there's not a God guiding history... Like, what will it be like 10 years from now? What kind of world will my kids grow up in? But we've got this reality that God not only guides history, he is going to wrap history up. Blessed hope. Now, hope for the Christian is not just, well, I hope things are going to be better. I really don't know. But wishfully, I'm, I, I'm, I'm thinking that things may get better for the Christian. Hope is simply saying the same God who kept his promises in the past Duh, is going to keep his promises in the future. So I can trust them. Uh, hope is simply faith that has its object in the future. Maybe you're here today and you're feeling completely out of hope. You're out of hope. You're like, I don't see any hope for my family today. I don't see any hope for, for my relationships. My marriage, I'm not seeing any hope for my marriage. The doctors have not given me much hope beyond the next six months. I'm in a dark place. I'm covered under a sea of depression. I've been let down by friend after friend. I lurch from toxic relationship to toxic relationship. Despair has grabbed hold of me, and I just cannot see how things can get better. Well, let me invite you into a relationship with Jesus Christ, because you believe in Jesus. You can always have the assurance that the best is always yet to come. It's not just unmitigated darkness and bleakness ahead of you. Yes, there's times of discouragement. Yes, there's times when fear is on your heart. But for the Christian, you know, one day Jesus will split the eastern skies and come back to rule and to reign and to take away all of this grief and all of this fear and all of this sin. And so I can carry on. I can press on. Real hope. It's not found in a better diagnosis from the doctor, but it is found in Jesus Christ who conquered death itself. Real hope is not found in going to a counselor, but is knowing the one who is the wonderful counselor, the one who has all wisdom. Real hope is not just found in a, another 12-step program and after, after another, but it is found in the transforming grace of Jesus who promises to forgive every sin. Real hope is not found in a politician, but is found in the King of Kings one day coming back to rule and to reign with a rod of iron for all eternity. He's coming back one day to rescue his people from sin, from misery, from guilt, from shame forever. All right? You see, the first coming, if he came the first time, he's coming back the second time. And if he's coming back the second time, that gives me hope to put one foot in front of another and to walk with Jesus even when the lights go out, to walk with Jesus even when I go through the valley of the shadow of death, to walk with Jesus even when loved ones are no longer with me, to walk with Jesus even when I don't know where the next step will take me because we know where the road ends. Our hope's not found in feel-good slogans or empty appeals to emotions. That's not what I'm doing this morning. I'm giving you concrete realities from the Word of God.
Reality is founded on historical reality. Jesus came into this world. God's grace appeared. So grace appeared. There's our anchor, the chain keeping the ship of our lives going in the direction of holiness. Grace appeared. Grace saves. Grace transforms. Grace anticipates the blessed hope and the glorious appearing. By the way, one little note there in verse 13 before we move on. It's the glory of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, we're not talking about glory of God and Jesus. Really, the sense here in the original is the great God who is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God, not just a messenger, but the message, God himself. But finally, I want you to see in verse 14 that Advent grace motivates. That's really the whole point this morning. The grace of God that's unleashed in the incarnation, unleashed at Advent motivates us to live a certain way. Notice what he says. We kinda, he mentions Jesus in verse, in verse 13, and Paul can't really help himself to sort of go off on a little aside about Jesus, who gave himself for us. This, this one who is coming back is the one who gave himself for us. Why? Why did he give himself for us? Why did he come to this earth? He came to this earth to redeem us, right? But he redeemed us. Why? That he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. All of this brings us to the place of being zealous to do his will. You see, by grace we are ransomed. That's that word redeemed. Someone kidnaps you, a ransom is paid. We have been ransomed from sin. We have been ransomed from the the domain of Satan. We have been ransomed from slavery to our own nature. How did he do it? He did it by giving Himself by his work on the cross, by his substitutionary atonement for us. Now, what did he redeem us from? All iniquity. That is lawlessness. Here's our problem is that we try to be a law to ourselves. Lay your life next to the Ten Commandments as interpreted by Jesus. And you'll see very quickly you fall short of the glory of God, that you live in rebellion to the law of God. We are not basically good people. We are rebels. We are lawless. And Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to rescue you from that. Not just the penalty, but he's actually going to change our lives. So the same great God who is the Lord and Savior in verse 13, that same great God gave himself for us. That's incredible. We've been purchased by him. We've been purchased for him. So he's redeeming us from all iniquity, all lawlessness. So by grace we're ransomed. That's motivation one leading us to good works at the end of the verse. Motivation number two here in verse 14 is not only has he ransomed us, but he has purified us. He gave himself for us that he might purify, that he might cleanse us. So another aspect of sin, sin's not just rebellion against God's law. Sin is also pollution. Sin is like playing in the septic tank, just absolute disgusting filth that clings to us, and we like it and we love it. And then the the gospel of Jesus is an absolute cleansing from that cleansing us from all the pollution, all the stain, all the guilt. Advent grace comes crashing into history at the first coming, and it brings this cleansing for us. So we've been ransomed, we've been cleansed. And then it says that he might purify unto himself a peculiar people. We were like, yep, this is a pretty peculiar group of people here. Well, peculiar here doesn't mean weird. By the way, I know some, you know, some of Christians who put Baptist up on the church sign. It's just like a magnet for weird people like me. But that's not really what he's talking about. Peculiar here means sort of a special treasure, something that is special, something that is unique. So here's, here's the third motivation. It's not only that we have been ransomed, that we have been cleansed, but that we are treasured. 
You say, ah, oh, God treasures me. That, that high must be something special. No, no, not because I'm special. The only reason God treasures you and me is because of his grace and his favor on our lives, because of the righteousness of Jesus that we wear on our backs. But we are treasured by God. Think of the encouragement that is as you go out into this world to live a holy life. I'm treasured by God. I've been purified by God. I've been ransomed by God. I am his. I am not my own. It's my only hope in life and death that I am not my own, but that I am my Savior's. God does not hold us at arm's length and merely tolerate us, right? He doesn't just, all right, kiddos over here, I just, I tolerate your presence, but don't get too close. No, God does not merely tolerate you, beloved. God treasures you. That's what the gospel does. He treasures you. He delights in you. He loves you. Because you are in Christ and he loves, the Father loves nothing more than his own son. And in Christ, I I am in the one, in a relationship with, in union with the one who he treasures more than anything. I am accepted in the beloved one. We are treasured, we are special, we are chosen. And why not? If he sent from heaven to seek us out, if he sent from heaven his only son to die for us and to redeem us, then, of course, he would treasure us. So notice the implication here, that we would be a peculiar people zealous of good works, committed to doing good works. What a chain is forged here. Christmas, Advent grace, it comes appearing decisively in history, in the the first coming of Jesus. That same grace transforms us day in and day out through the example, the teaching of Jesus, his active working in our lives The same grace anticipates future glory. The same grace motivates us to be zealous for good works. Now, that word zealous. Last night, I I watched the Iron Bowl. How many of you watched the Iron Bowl? Okay, several of you watched all 23 hours of that that game last night. Um, There are people who sit in the stadium called fans. Okay, you know what a fan is? A fan is literally a fanatic. People paint their bodies orange and blue and burgundy and there for hours, and they cry when their team loses. Sorry, Auburn fans. Uh, they, they, are, they are fanatical for their thing. We would, in the ancient world, they would be called zealots. Okay, zealots for their, that's literally the Greek word here. The ter- term also had sort of uh, political connotations. Uh, we have a lot of people in our world today who are zealots for political causes on the left and the right. In the ancient world, zealots were even willing to take up arms for their cause, right? That people who are devoted to something, he's saying, Christians, you're zealots, not for a football team, not for a political candidate, not for a cause. You are zealots for good works. Isn't that interesting? Christmas motivates us to be zealots for good works, doing good to other people, discipling other people. As you look towards 2022, you're like, what can I do for the kingdom of God? Is there one person in this church that you can begin discipling? Listen, church, I've talked for four and a half years about a culture of discipling. It is time to step up and say, I'm going to find someone, even within this church family, that I'm going to do some spiritual good to. Some of you have decades of experience walking with Jesus. Who are you pouring that into, right? You've got friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus. How are you reaching out to them to tell them about the one who died for them, who offers eternal life to them? Think about good works. Even in coming weeks, you can simply do this, invite people to church. Numerous studies have been done to show that around Christmas and Easter, people who do not go to church, people who do not go to who are not Christians, would say, I would be very likely to go to church if a friend invited me. Uh, Or maybe even go a step further, if a friend brought them. Uh, So 
Bring, you can simply invite friends and bring them to church. You can find ways to do good in, in quiet ways where you say, you know what, here's someone I want to I help them pay their tuition for college. Here's a missionary I want to give to this, this good work. I, I want to use my finances for the kingdom of God. Many of you are doing things like that. Good works is as diverse as the desires that God lays on your heart, but we ought to be zealous for these things. So let me just give you some concluding points. Because of Advent grace, God's grace appeared decisively in history. Here's some points of application. Number one, pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. That's very clear in the text. Grace that entered history is grace that demands our repentance. So are there sin patterns in your life? Is there ungodliness, impiety, areas in your life that are not lived in reference to God, are not lived in submission to God? Are there sin patterns that you cling to that still cling to you? Grace demands that you give those up. Say, I can't find the motivation. Look to the reality of the incarnation. Here's Jesus coming into this world, giving up the glories of heaven, calling me to simply give up some sin. Here's a second point of application. Nurture hope. Christians, we ought not to be people who are sitting around with long faces. Oh, it's just getting so bad out there. And, man, I just watched some more you know, news things, and I'm, I'm just really down about this. And No, nurture hope. But by the way, hope, Christian hope is not escapism. I hear a lot of Christians say this. Man, this world's so bad, I can't wait for Jesus to come back again. No, the thing that we're hoping for is not escape, but it's Jesus, right? If, you're, if, you're, if your eschatology, your end times theology is just, I want to get out of here before it gets really bad, and you don't want Jesus, you're not doing it the biblical way. The biblical way is I'm looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearance of Jesus, right? He's the one that we're longing for. Biblical hope is longing for Jesus, not just longing for escape from a society that's becoming more unchristian. Nurture hope. Third, embrace your identity. Verse 14 tells us who we really are. Your identity, Christian, is not a sin that you struggle with. Your identity, Christian, is not some personality trait or some label that a psychologist gave you. Your identity is ransomed. Your identity is cleansed. Your identity is treasured. That is who you are. Embrace that. This text, I think, calls us to meditate on Jesus coming into this world. Think about this. If Jesus did not enter this world, we would never have seen what God's grace looked like. If Jesus had not entered this world, we could not have been saved, according to verse 11. If Jesus did not enter this world, we could not be transformed. If Jesus did not enter this world, then we'd have no reason to expect his second coming if the first coming never happened. Jesus did not enter this world. He would never be coming back to establishing his kingdom and to making all things new. But the reality of the incarnation says this. He did enter his world, and that makes all the difference. Father, may we bring you honor and glory in our lives. May you be our treasure.